Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. My friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. You know, I am really enjoying this season hmm. and in no small part because we are talking about your book, The Soul of Shame. Hmm. And I want to implore our listeners to pull it off your bookshelf if you already have it or go out and purchase it. The podcast and the book make great companions. You'll get a lot more out of it if you're doing both. So I want to just encourage you to do that. And today we are on chapter five of The Soul of Shame, and Kurt's going to be talking about with us about shame and the biblical narrative. Yeah, you know, uh, in the last episode, Pep, we talked about this notion of storytelling. And anytime we think about the Bible, and if you were to poll 100 people you know, they might, you know, what, what is the Bible or what, what do you think of it? I don't know how many people would say, well, I think, I think it's really, it's a way for humans, for, for God and humans to tell our story of each other together. And, you know, it's like on, when you have research projects, you have a, you know, your principal author, your or your principal investigator, your PI, your lead author. And we might say that, you know, the Bible is a, is a, I mean, it, it, it's lots of things, right? It's, it's history, it's poetry, it's instruction, it's, you know, a lot of things. But, but at its heart, it is a story of God's relationship with us. And God is the primary storyteller. Now, he invites us to be part of it. We respond to God, but, but God is this primary storyteller and, you know, all that begins in the beginning. And, and in some respects, when we read in the first chapter of Genesis that we are made in God's image, we, we recognize that the very act of God making us like that is that he's making us as storytellers. We, we've talked on other seasons uh, in The Soul of Desire, for instance, we talked about this notion that God is an artist. God is a creator. And we are made in his image to create. Likewise, and one of the first ways that we make things is like the things that we literally make up in our head. Like we make up story, we, we make them up. And these things hopefully are correlating very highly with the experiences that we have in the world. We've talked at the very end of our last show about this, the, the entrance of the shame attendant. We've talked about how shame shows up very early in our life. And by the time we have the capacity to start to make meaning out of our lives, Evil will want to inject and insert shame to join that conversation. And as we said last time, to get tangled up in a Gordian knot with our own stories in such a way that it's really difficult for me to untangle evil's intentional use of shame in my storytelling from the story that God is trying to tell. And one of the ways that we talked about how we practice telling a story of new creation, we you know, we highlighted how in that story that you told about the play in which you entered onto the stage with, you know, with the elevator out and the director says, like, what happened to the elevator? This sense that you had to practice that you ha and you had to go in and be like, you had lots and lots and lots of practice that enabled you to actually embody the story that you were telling, to tell the story in that way. And so today we really want to just take a, a walk through the story of shame, not as evil wants to tell it, 
We're going to look at how evil wants to try to tell it, but we want to also begin to see the first hints of how God is telling the story about how evil is trying to tell the story. And, you know, this this begins, and, and, and we say at the end, we want folks to have this sense that where shame wants to be in charge of us, God wants to tell a very different story. Hmm. That's really the take-home message. God is in the business of telling a different story than the one evil is trying to tell. And for this, we, we turn to the second and third and to some degree the fourth chapters of Genesis, and we see that the setup for this story begins at the end of Genesis chapter two, where we read that the husband and his wife, the man and his wife were naked and they were unashamed. They were on the precipice of great generativity great genesis, great creativity. They were about to be authors of a beautiful, brilliant story, part of which included their shepherding and stewarding the land, including how they shepherded the garden in which they lived, which included the degree to which they were going to uh, manage and take care of the creatures that were in that garden, including ones that didn't belong there, including the serpent. And instead of shepherding them, shepherding the serpent right out of the garden and having nothing to do with him, they had a conversation. The shepherd, you know, the, the, the shepherd kind of had a hard time. The shepherds had a hard time doing that and said, the serpent comes. And we read in that story, you know, the, the, the writers of, of the first, uh, of Genesis in general, but particularly like the first 10 chapters of it, uh, 10, 11 chapters are just brilliant. They're, they're, they're brilliant writers and they show us things. They don't explain things. They, they show us things. And they show us that evil, they, they, you know, they, they, don't give us, they don't give us all kind of like, where did it come from? Why did it come from? They just say it's there. And, you know, we can look at our lives and the brokenness and the pain and the suffering and especially the shame. And we can spend a lot of time and energy wondering like, where, how, like why, why, did this, why is this here? The story in Genesis doesn't spend really any time. Other than to say evil was there, God put it there. I mean, God made made it possible, and evil was crafty. It was the craftiest, the subtlest, which is this combination that the Hebrew you can you can translate it either as crafty or as subtle. So the, both are really crucially important because the intention is to fool people. The intention is to shame people. The intention is to do it extraordinarily subtly. And one of the first things that we see is that this, this word for the serpent, this, and I, I, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, this nakash. This nakash. It's, this it's nakash. It, you have to, it's more in the back of the throat towards the end. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were, you had, I, I just, you, you know, I think, I think you did, I think you did mean to, and you were waiting for this moment to interrupt me. You knew I was going to butcher it. And I know that you've, you've probably spent hours in your acting in, in your acting sound booth, pronouncing this word, imagining being in the garden, what you actors do, and then you're looking for the moment to correct me as I need to be corrected. So anyway, this thing is called what? Nakash. Okay. It's not it's not knockoff. No. You gotta get the at the end. I don't even I, I don't I, I don't even think I have one of those in in my neck. You need to work on it. One of those things I need to get in the end. I don't have one of those in the beginning, in the middle, or the end of my story. I'm not going to find that. (laughs) Okay. So 
one of the first things we recognize is this, this word represents some kind of a being that is understood as the bright one or the burning one that's extraordinarily attractive, extraordinarily beautiful. It is not a being that uh, we would look at and like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with you. There, there's, it, it is intended to draw the woman's and the man's attention to it. It's subtle. And this is something that we, it's important for us to remember that so much of our shame takes place in moments in which we have connection to things that we are drawn to. Well, I mean, of course, that's what it would be. If it were grotesque, there would be no draw. If, if, right. we, if, it, it, if it made us want to, you know, if it was revolting to us, we would run the other way. Right. Yeah. And I think, the, you know, the, the whole notion, I mean, how many people, uh, you know, they're, they're, I, mean, I know some folks who are really attracted to and are drawn to like reptiles and snakes in particular. But I know a lot of people who like, you know, it's like Indiana Jones, right? Right. Why did it have to be snakes? Right. Right. He could take care of the tarantulas, no problem on his back, but like the snakes. It's, it's I think it's striking that again, the writers don't go out of their way to explain things, but they show us that this creature, which many humans would find to be so off-putting, so terrifying, so uh, was once this thing of great attraction, this bright one, the burning one. And they don't see, the woman and the man don't see that this burning one, this bright one is coming to wound them. And we, we read that the conversation begins and the evil begins this conversation. Did God really say? And once he used doubt, Michael Polanyi, the famous philosopher of science, used to say that doubt is merely shifting the direction of our faith. In any given moment when I'm doubting one thing, to doubt one thing means I am immediately, even if I'm non-consciously, I'm shifting the, if I, if I trust this thing, but now I don't trust it, it means I'm trusting something else Instead of it, something else I've elevated in my mind is having more authority than this thing that I now doubt. And this is part of the subtlety of evil. Evil wants to keep the woman's attention on God. Did he really say, oh, you won't die? She says, no, we won't. We, we shouldn't even eat it. We shouldn't even touch it, which, of course, is an aberration of the history of what God actually said. And there's this sense in which Evil wants to keep the woman's attention on the thing that she's doubting without acknowledging that she has already shifted Mm. her, like, who is now in authority in her life? Who is she now paying attention to? Remember, we've said, we we, we like to believe, especially at the end of modernity and postmodernity, we'd like to believe that we are self-identifying, that we are the ones who are masters of our own personal universe. We declare who we are. We decide who we are. When the fact is, is the human brain doesn't work this way. We, we're, we never do this. We are always collaborating in the stories that we tell about ourselves. Yes, we are the primary agents in telling our stories, but we are not the only people in the stories that are doing the telling. It's never the case. And part of that is I'm always giving somebody else authority at any given moment to speak into my life, to tell me, to help me tell the story about what is true about who I am. But we don't do it just willy-nilly. We don't do it by accident. We do it in response to things that are happening emotionally. And at some level, we would say that in this story, again, there's this storytelling. Evil is about to tell a different story. And he says to the woman, God didn't, God didn't 
wants you to eat the fruit because he knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll become like him. There's this unintentional, this, this, he's going to allow the woman to make some assumptions. Well, what would a God who wouldn't want me to be like him be like after all? Right? Evil doesn't come out and say, God is actually a tyrant. God is a conniver. God can't be trusted. He's not direct. He's subtle. He's not direct. He allows the woman to start to tell a different story within her own mind. I think I've told this story here before about the patient that I had who, when she was about 19 years old, her father called her and said, I'm leaving your mother. I'm moving to a different family that I already have in Seattle. And she's like, What? like a woman that he had that nobody knew this is back way, you know, this is years and years ago before the age of cell phone and the internet and so forth. And nobody would have known anything about his travels to the West coast. And he had two kids already. Hmm. And he's going to leave. But then he says to her, but it's not your fault. Don't worry. It's not your fault. And like, how can she think otherwise? Like, well, wait a minute. Like you can choose to go someplace and not, and, and somehow I don't have anything to do with that. This is a, he, he's even actively saying, it's not your fault, he says to my patient, who at the time we were talking about this was in her 50s. You, you, you can, it's, it's, it's not your fault. But in fact, that's the conclusion of the story that she's going to draw. Why, how is it that I'm not enough for you to stay in our family? You're going to leave my mom and leave me. And this is essentially, we might say, is like, is, is a, again, I, you know, we, we don't know the inner workings of Eve's mind, but it's not, it's not too much to assume that, like, what the serpent says starts to tell a different story. And as you've said, she starts to fill in a white space. She starts to fill things in. And this becomes a wound for her. The, the serpent isn't just giving her a new set of facts. Oh, as it turns out, that's actually a strawberry plant, not a raspberry plant. This isn't that. This is about the core of who she is, the, the relationship, right? And we notice that the story at the end of this, when she's shifted her direction of authority, of her faith, is this sense of like, I'm not enough. God doesn't want me because I'm not enough. It's not just about shifting facts, but it's about disrupting relationships. Evil's moving from information to isolation. He's and, and he's counted again this subtlety. And one, you know, we, we've talked in, in we, we've talked before about uh, in our series on trauma this notion of vicarious trauma, this notion that I can witness a traumatizing event that happens to somebody else and I'm affected by it. And at some point we get the picture, we get the sense that like where's Adam in the middle of all this? Something's already happening where in which. The serpent does not intentionally include both parties. He's not talking to them as a couple. Mm-hmm. He's talking to one of them. If I'm at I'm like, wait a minute. Why am I? There's something that happens. The serpent doesn't say, hey, I want to have a conversation with you, but we're going to wait a few hours until God comes along. We can get everybody in the room at the same time. Right. The serpent's moving to isolate them. And in this way, the serpent is teaching them to talk about God, not with God. And this is what shame tends to do. It talks about us, but not with us. And imagine all the stories that we tell in our mind about the stories that other people are telling about us. <laughs> and when we have those imagined stories in our mind, we don't stop and say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm worried that Pepper is thinking that like I, I'm, I didn't handle that very well. So I'm, I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm just going to call it. I'm going to talk with Pepper. 
no, in my own mind, I'm going to talk with my shame attendant about you and about me and about how like I screwed that up and all the things. And it's just, and this is what we do with shame, right? We then end up in, in the privacy of our mind, or of course, with our friends, we talk about other friends or enemies. This is one of the most powerful methodologies that evil has. It has us moving to talking about rather than talking with. And then in this case, shame doesn't simply emerge. It requires a provocateur, right? There is the sense in which shame didn't just, like the woman isn't just walking around and suddenly she just feels shame. No, there is this story that the serpent begins to tell. There is this wound. And at first glance, all it looks like, it, it just looks like, uh, you know, you know, you can imagine the serpents are like, look, I'm just, I'm just asking some questions. I'm not telling you God's a jerk or a tyrant. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just asking questions. There's no sense of direct assault, but there is a wound that takes place, this provocateur, and then this leads to violence. Now, we don't think of it in these terms, but this is the first time that we see that in response to this shame, in response to this wound, to cope with this, then we see that, and the woman saw that the fruit was beautiful for food, for wisdom. She saw that. I mean, really? And then she took. The taking of the fruit now becomes a means to protect against the very thing that has prompted her to take it in the first place. If I can take the fruit and be like God, then I no longer have to cope with in this way. I, right? I, I can be on my own and be okay. And this is what shame further does. It isolates me into thinking that I can take something by violence. Everything else, everything I give you, everything has been given to you, God says to the man about all, I've given you the fruit, I've given you the, right, the seed of the field, all this is, is a gift. My response to shame is that I take. I take from others, I take from myself, I, I take. I, and, and these are things that I take that don't belong to me. And to do that is an act of violence. I violate I violate the relationship with God by taking, not by receiving that which has been given. And then we go on to see that once this happens, they start down this path and we notice that when they'd eaten the fruit and she took some and she gave it to her husband and he ate also because you figure, gosh, he's also reeling and not knowing what to do with it. So I'll also use this to cope. And then the text reads this, this, in the English, it's, it's an interesting reading, and their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. Their eyes were opened. It's a passive tense. Hmm. We don't get the sense that, and they opened their eyes. Yeah. We have to recognize that uh, we are creatures. We were created. We were made. We didn't make ourselves. And uh, we live in a culture that is doing just about everything it possibly can to negate that reality. I want to be, I, I want to ultimately be in charge of me. The whole notion, I mean, it, 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 we even find it, like there are some that would even find it to, to be anathema that someone else was responsible for the fact that we came into the world. But somebody else was. Like, I don't show up because I decide to show up. And this is off-putting to me because it reminds me 
that I'm a creature and that everything that I have is a gift. Elements of it require my agency, require my participation, my cooperation, my stewardship, all those kinds of things. But all those things are always only ever a response to generosity from somewhere else. But when I have to cope with shame, it moves me toward taking. And then my eyes are opened by something else. By So even shame itself, even my awareness happens because something else brings that awareness to me. We don't know what that means. We don't know how it happened. Like you can imagine like them looking at each other and finally seeing things about each other for the first time that they can't stand. Like, you know, gosh, I don't really like your appearance or I see this, these features about you and and their eyes are open. And you can imagine like Eve opens Adam's eyes to things about himself. He opens her eyes. Her eyes are open, maybe not just magically, but by the forces that are actually in play. And then we, you know, we do this to each other all the time. I'm going to open your eyes to the things about you that I think are really, really awful. And then we have these shame attendants that we talk about in the last episode that are more than happy to open our eyes to things from the moment that we get up, right? You get up, you're late again. You go to the bathroom. Oh, that's, no. Ooh, that's scary. Just just don't look in the mirror. All, all the things, all the things that are banging around in our head. Right. That our shame attendant wants to remind us of. It becomes this self-perpetuating experience that then immediately moves toward the next response, which is one of hiding. So I create violence, I take, and then I open other people's eyes by violence, and then I have to go hide because perhaps something even bigger and badder than me is coming to open my eyes and perhaps even kill me, make, you know, make, it, make it worse. We, we know this. Shame leads toward our hiding as a natural response. First, it begins with fig leaves, and then they go into the woods. And then they use each other, right? Because by the time God comes, they heard the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. They hear him coming. He's the one who said, on the day that you eat thereof, surely you will die. And you figure like, oh, he's coming to kill us. He's coming to kill us. And so God says, where are you? I was like, I hid because I was afraid because I was naked, right? I hide in response to my being afraid, in response to my vulnerability. Back to Genesis 2.25, they were naked and unashamed. But when shame enters the picture, the nakedness is no longer a source of creativity and comfort and confidence. Now it's a source of fear. And it leads to hiding. And we can think like how many of us have parts of our stories in which our vulnerability has been exploited. And instead of the opportunity for being creative, that creative thing that we offered in the boardroom or that creative thing that we offered in the bedroom or that creative thing that we offered in our conversation with our parents or our siblings or our friends is summarily dismissed. And our vulnerability leads to hiding because we've been wounded, because we're afraid. Because of this terror that we are going to be abandoned, this terror that like death that God talked about isn't just the death of physical death, it's this death of relationship. It's this sense of you will forever be left with the felt sense that you're being left. Which is like experiential nausea. It's like the existential nausea that never goes away. 
And truly, God comes with a question, and he says, where are you? But then once Adam starts to talk, his next response is not what, it's who. Who told you you were naked? And now I'm going to start to hide behind her. I'm like, I'm going to, like, first it's fig leaves, then it's the woods. Now I'm going to use my, I'm going to hide behind my wife. Well, you, she's the person that you gave me. God's not interested in those facts per se. God's interested in relationship. He's try, he's pressing into relationship, not so much facts. He's trying to get to Adam. He's trying to get to Eve while they throw each other under the bus. And, and this is what's really striking what follows this sense of, you know, when we read what follows is that God then starts to declare a series of curses. Anybody who's familiar with this text will be aware. He starts to curse. He starts, he begins with the serpent. He then goes to the man and the woman and the ground itself. And it's easy to read this text and assume that what God is doing is offering curses. He's punishing people. This is the punishment that you receive, when in fact that's not what's taking place at all. God is simply telling a story, but he's the only one at the scene who can tell the story the way, the real, the way it really is. He's going to tell it like it is. Nobody else is willing to do it. Adam isn't willing to do it. He's not willing to say like, look, I was asleep at the wheel. Do with me what you will. It's my, I, this is ultimately my responsibility. I know that she's got stuff. I, like, I, I didn't do what I needed to do. I wasn't caretaking for the creation for my wife. I wasn't, I wasn't watching over things. He didn't tell it the way it really was. God's the only one who's left to tell the story the way it really is. And the beautiful thing about this is that even though we are afraid that God's going to tell a story in which everything collapses, God begins, even in the course of talking about how awful things are, to tell a different story. You know, we were talking at one point about how my experience of the Empire Strikes Back, uh, you get to the end and I'm like, like, Oh my gosh, it couldn't get any worse. I can't even imagine how, like, it, it's so, it was so awful for me. I was so stunned. Like, I was left unable to imagine how George Lucas was going to fix this. Now, you, you know, you can take a breath and leave the movie theater and you start to wonder, oh, now you start to wonder all, well, if that's true, if, if, you know, Darth is really his father, then what else is true? And all the things you start to wonder because you're trying to imagine, like, how, how can we make this a good outcome? But in the moment... All I hear is curse. That's all I hear. And, you know, if we push a little further right into Genesis 4, we see, oh, and this is the evidence because now we have two brothers. And even when God says to Cain, evil is lurking at your door and its desire is for you, just like the desire of Eve was for Adam. You're, it's the only two times in the Old Testament there's this notion of desire, this, this, this longing to consume, to devour but you must master it. There's still hope even in that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. He can't do it. And he kills his brother. So violence moves from the taking of fruit to the taking of life. And what are we supposed to do when so much of our lives and our world looks like this? Because I think, you know, Pep, these days we look around and shame appears to have taken the throne mm. culturally. It feels like it has been coronated. And in all kinds of ways, we keep coming into the throne room and just paying it homage. 
and evil that has no interest in notoriety. Its only interest is to devour us. Kind of stands off to the side and lets it happen because it doesn't need to do much work when we're doing so much of it for it. But as we like to say, the best stories always leave us nearly, just like the Empire Strikes Back, nearly if not completely in despair. And then I got to thinking about this song from David Wilcox, Show the Way. And if our listeners ever, I don't know if you know David Wilcox, but he's just a really beautiful singer-songwriter. And his song, Show the Way, there's there are some lines I'm going to read from it. If someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat, and it's looking like the evil side will win. So on the edge of every seat, from the moment that the whole thing begins, it's love who mixed the mortar, and it's love who stacked these stones, and it's love who made the stage here, although it looks like we're alone. In this scene set in shadows, like the night is here to stay, there is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play. For in this darkness, love can show the way. That's beautiful. <laughs> If you've been listening to the Being Known podcast, you know that trauma and its healing are something to which we pay a great deal of attention. So when the women at Hun's Honey reached out to partner with us, it was really just a no-brainer. Hun's Honey is a social enterprise dedicated to creating dignity and purpose for and with women who have survived significant trauma, be that of addiction, trafficking, generational poverty, or abuse. Before being employed at Hun's Honey, these women commit to a holistic healing process through a life development program, free counseling, workshops, and building community. You know, Kurt, recently Amy and I had a great opportunity to tour Hun's Honey. And I really have to tell you that we were both just blown away by the work that they're doing there. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. heart that Mandy and Sarah and Jordan have for their women that they serve and the work that they do. Mm-hmm. We were so impressed with these women who are bravely working to overcome the trauma that they've suffered. And here's how you can help. So Hun's Honey, they sell home body and honey goods, such as sugar scrubs, soap bars, beeswax candles, and raw honey. All of their products are filled with high-quality natural ingredients using locally sourced honey. You know, in fact, they raise their own bees, and they harvest their own honey themselves. And we heard stories about the healing process of working with bees. One of the women uh, had a story that she was saying that but as you approach the bees, before you approach the bees, they could feel any anxiety that you may be having. So you really have mm. to sort of go through mm. this meditative, mindful process of, mm. of calming yourself before you approach the hive or you're going to get stung, which I thought wow. was just fascinating. Wow. Wow. Living, breathing experience of life-changing work. 
And 100% of Hun's Honey's profits go to employing women survivors of trauma, 100%. Hmm. So, folks, your purchase has a purpose. Hmm. It paves the way for women to rebuild their lives in concrete ways. So here's what you can do. You go check it all out. They've got great gifts and everything else there at hunshoney.com. That's H-O-N-S-H-O-N-E-Y.com. And use the coupon code BEINGKNOWN. That's B-E-I-N-G-K-N-O-W-N for 20% off your order. This is a great gift that has generational impact. That's Hun's Honey. We just wanted to let you know about something that's going to be happening on October 28th, which is a Friday. It is the second annual Center for Being Known Connections Conference. You want to talk a little bit about that for us, Kurt? Yeah, thanks, Pep. We're really excited. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the Connections Conference that we had last year. And this year, it is going to be a one-day event, Friday, October 28th, as you mentioned. And the purpose of the Center for Being Known is to serve as a clearinghouse, but also to develop an association of those folks who are really interested in pursuing more about what it means for us to not just learn about what we're doing at the interface of interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation, but how we apply this in our day-to-day lives. Mm. And in particular, how we apply this work in particular domains of our lives, whether we are working in business or education or in the arts or in the mental health field or whatever it is that we're doing. If if we're working in farming, whatever it is that we're doing, we really want to invite people to be curious about what is God up to using this work that he's given us to do, and how does that enable us to flourish in particular ways in those particular domains? And so the conference is offering four really, really seasoned speakers, people who know their craft and who know their worlds, four speakers, one in business, one in education, one in spiritual formation, one in the mental health field, that are all going to help us dig deeper into what it means for us to apply these principles in their particular domains and also help spark imagination for everyone else who comes uh, to do the same, no matter what that domain is that they long to see God do more work in. I'm really excited for this this year. You know, last year we did just a virtual event, and this Mm -hmm. year we are doing a hybrid event where you can actually come to the event, be there in person with us, And if you aren't able to make the trip, wherever you are, there is a virtual option as well. Go to thecbk.org to register and get all the information. Um, I will actually be there. I'll be emceeing the event this year, which I have... Dude, you know, okay, okay. I've no been chopping at the bit. I've been chopping at the bit to say, like, yes, like you're the reason people should come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's. Just I have t- had so many this. people ask the question. <laughs> I've had so many people ask the question. So, Kurt, what's the story behind the most beautiful man in the world? And I want to say, come to the CBK conference and get your answer. Oh my gosh! And I tell you what, we have decided to do something really different as well. Uh, <laughs> if, if you are coming, if you're in town. Uh, then the night before, on the Thursday before, on the 27th, we are going to record a live version of the Being Known podcast. And oh my gosh! Yeah, we're, yeah. we're <laughs> and we're all going to be there. Amy will be there. It's yes. all. It's just. It's going to be. 
it's going to be great. And I, uh, we're going to hold this uh, at a place called McLean Presbyterian Church. It's going to be a beautiful venue. And, you know, I, I would love for people to come, you know, for the CBK conference, come for our live recording of uh, the podcast. And I, and I would say I would want people to come, certainly uh, come prepared to uh, find joy, mm-hmm. come prepared to find connections with other people, to be nourished. Um, but also during the conference, uh, come prepared to do a little bit of work. Come prepared to you know do some some work of of some rigor because we're going to invite people. To, we're going to in, invite you to uh, let God uh, into spaces that perhaps we've not always even been aware that He wants to come into. But uh, overall, I'm just thrilled at what we've got on the docket for this conference and for the podcast recording. And uh, Pepper, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you're going to be able to MC this and that we'll get to do the recording the night before. I'll do my best to not ruin the whole event. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. So go check it out at the CBK, T-H-E-C-B-K dot org to register. It's, uh, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I'm struck by these chapters in Genesis is uh, it's not unlike life in that so much of Genesis chapter three is just awful. Chapter four is awful. Chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. They're largely awful. Throughout the entire course of it, you see shafts of light. Moments where God says the serpent will strike at his heel, but he will crush its head. This notion that God is not worried that he's going to run out of time. And as prevalent as evil feels and as densely has been the real estate that it seems like shame has taken up in our neural networks, God is not leaving himself without a witness. And this is God's way of beginning to retell this story. And for our listeners, we all have our stories in which we can name all kinds of parts of them that feel like they're just too big to be retold. It's like trying to like move the earth. But the good news is that Good Friday moves the earth in ways we can't even imagine, and it can do so because of Easter. And from the standpoint of Easter, we look back through Good Friday right to the first chapters of Genesis, and we see that the very thing that got us into trouble, our vulnerability, is going to be the very thing that God uses to heal us from all of this that for so many of us feels so overwhelming. And that's really good news. That is good news. Do you have an application for us this week? I do. So this week, I just want to invite our listeners to reflect on the story of the this Genesis account as you've heard it and as you encounter it in the soul of shame. You can you can go to the book as Pepper has invited you to do, and to reflect on this Genesis story and how sh- how does shame's role feel new or different to you? you know, as you consider the things that we've talked about. 
would love to reflect on how your life demonstrates at times what it feels like to hide. What are the relationships in your life in which you are more quickly tempted to talk about someone rather than with them? And how is shame possibly playing a role in that relationship? And how would you like the relationship to actually be rather than how it is? Because the good news is that as we, and as we will see, as we actually turn our attention toward shame, because our impulse is to turn away from it, as we turn our attention toward it in community, we're going to find that as we act on these reflections, we're going to be giving God an opportunity to renew our minds and create new neural networks along the way. Thanks be to God. Thanks be God. Thank you, Kurt. I love the way you told this story today and uh, in a way that I think is new for a lot of people to hear. I, I appreciate that. And um, I'm going to look at this application and dig into it a bit this week. So thank you so much. And if you are watching us uh, on YouTube, we have Amy joining us here. So stick around for that. Kurt, can't wait to see you next week. Love you. Right on, brother. Right on. Love you too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.